Six races left, but is it really all to play for? Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark left into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. And James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Hello and welcome back to F1 in Review, the episode and the hour where we look back in the latest in Formula 1 and we've just got off the back of Monza, a semi-exciting Grand Prix, a Grand Prix that, that gave us so much to begin with, quite a lot in the middle and then ended on a flat line, a disappointment and Twitter got outraged yet again. You'll notice that it is me doing the introduction and not Tom. Unfortunately, Tom can't be with us. He is covering uh, the Queen's funeral at the moment and so unfortunately couldn't make the, the podcast. So you've just got myself and Angus to guide you through the latest in Formula One news. And as I hinted there at the beginning, this this weekend was able to offer us so much at Monza because going into it, we had a bit of a mixed up grid. If you weren't paying attention, you would have noticed that in the qualifying order in no way reflected the grid order um, between Saturday and Sunday. The top 10 on Saturday was Leclerc, Verstappen, Sainz, Perez, Hamilton, Russell, Norris, Ricardo, Gasly and Alonso, which turned into Leclerc, Russell, Norris, Ricardo, Gasly, Alonso, Verstappen, De Vries, Joe and Latifi. Uh, De Vries they're covering for Alex Albon who unfortunately had to have an operation due to appendicitis and is now recovering after a, a respiratory uh, issue on um, his recovery when he came out of, of hospital so Alex Albon I hope you're you're feeling a bit better if you're tuning into this particular podcast and the reason for this mixed up grid order the, this change around in, in grid was because we had 10 individuals getting different penalties throughout the weekend due to changes in their their power unit just decisions to take the penalties because of of um new power unit points so we had some some ridiculous penalties um for example schumacher got a 10 place grid penalty uh magnuson got a 15 place grid penalty we had paris taking a 10 place grid penalty bottas taking a 15 place grid penalty and so saturday although it was quite exciting to see who was going to qualify in pole position we all knew that it in no way was going to reflect on sunday which gave some of the backmarkers an opportunity perhaps to, to move up um and start somewhere new but angus i want to discuss with you actually the 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 idea of these penalties because if you don't know once you get to a certain level of penalty in Formula 1, it no longer matters. Let's say, for example, Verstappen qualifies in first place and then takes enough new engine parts that he gets a 20-place grid penalty. That means, at the best, he's going to start at the back. Well, after that point, you may as well take every other new part on your car which would in fact give you more penalties so you could end up getting a 30 40 place grid penalty but because you've maxed out right you the best place you can start is at the back of the grid you're technically in my opinion not being for lack of a better word punished for taking those extra parts for breaking the rules there's a reason why there are these penalties attached to the parts so angus do you think we need to mix up or, or change the way that we structure these penalties to prevent teams from effectively getting penalty-free parts? It's interesting because, yeah, you, you mentioned about penalty-free and also when you see the rate of knots at which some of these cars progress through the field, it still is penalty-free. I mean, Carlos Sainz started 19th or 18th and he was up to 5th by lap 10 or something like that. Like, talk about penalty-free. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't need the. He could start at the back every race apparently, and just 
absolutely blitzed through the field like that. But yes, um, the sister is not great when it takes three, four hours after qualifying for the FIA to produce the official grid, um, which was which is strange because I always thought I always thought there's a system where they simply would produce the grid based on how the order of the penalties being applied worked out. So, for example, if t- Team A takes penalty on Thursday, they have their penalty applied first before Team B, who took their penalty after Friday practice, then has theirs applied and so on. Um, and surely that would be the simplest way to do it, but doing it simple doesn't seem to be how everyone wanted to do it in the end. Um, so, yeah, I think... It's a tricky one because the engine penalty system is designed, of course, to prevent any like parts being overused. It's also all in line with F1's message with the hybrid engines that they're more efficient and more energy efficient. So therefore, they're saying, right, you can only use three engines a season as a result. Um, but at the same time, when we're also entering what seems to be, I've, I've made this point before, a year where in previous years, reliability was the most bulletproof I've probably seen it in Formula One for a, for a long time, but this year more cars seem to be having problems conking out the end of races. Like we had a, f- a couple of mechanical retirements in the race on, in fact, four mechanical. They're all mechanical retirements on the race in the race on Sunday. So they have to try and find a system where I appreciate they don't want to use too many engine parts, but it can it can put you in danger of like damaging championship fights as well when whoever has has poor reliability not only suffers from the reliability issues but also suffers from then the penalty they have as a result of losing ground in the championship and having to start a race from the back every now and then um which can make certain races interesting don't get me wrong but it's not the most ideal thing for the sport if you're looking at close battles so i can't say i know that no a grand solution other than can't they just do them in order, right? That makes most sense, but common sense these days is ignored sometimes. Well, it sort of is in order, though. But then, why would it? Why did? It, why did it have so much confusion? That would be the only thing. Well, it, it has a lot of confusion because although it's in order, um, there is sort of an algorithm to how they actually do this. So, I just just take an example, right? You've got Magnussen and Schumacher. So, Schumacher had a five-place grid penalty applied to him because he took a a new uh, part for his power unit. And then he had applied to that uh, another 10-place grid penalty because of his gearbox. Then Magnussen also had a 15-place grid penalty. So Magnussen and Schumacher have that sort of 15-place grid penalty. So because they qualified, with Magnussen qualified in 19th, technically speaking, Magnussen should start in 34th position. <laughs> and Schumacher should start in 35th position. Okay? And so, because that's equally at the back of the grid, you can't actually start in 34th and 35th position. Magnussen starts in front of Schumacher because although they're both at the back... They beat Magnussen beat Schumacher during qualifying, but then you have some weird quirks where you take these massive penalties, and because of the shifting grid around you, you can envisage a system where someone actually doesn't get as big a penalty as you would have thought. Because if you were supposed to start in seven, but everyone else had ten place grid penalties um, in like sixth and fifth position, um, etc., then you you might end up accidentally starting in in sixth, for example, and so you get like this this weird thing because of the way everyone shuffles around. And there was a lot of confusion at the weekend. And in the end, I couldn't even work out. I just had to wait until we got told. Gasly tweeted out, "Could someone let me know where I'm starting between uh, P5 and P9?" And in the end, people were able to explain to him that he was, in fact, starting in P5. But he didn't even know, because Gasly qualified in P9, but he ended up being in P5, because of the way everyone shifted forward. So it was a very, very confusing weekend. And in my opinion, and I wonder what you think about this, Angus, if you get, let's say, a 30... Let's say you get a 30-place grid penalty, okay, and you qualify in first, then you, you serve your penalty all the way down to, let's say, 
20th place so you've moved 19 places then in my mind you should have 11 place grid penalty left to serve which means that the next race you are forced to take an 11 place grid penalty now the only counter I, I could think is you know that's only works if you're at the front but you know we might well say then you know um it extends to the next sort of two races i don't know I, well, how would you fix the problem if i was to fully take the mick i reckon we should have an alternative solution do you remember when it was back in the day when McLaren had Honda engines and they were absolutely woeful and they used to get something ridiculous like 55 place grid penalties. Yes. Um, what I reckon they should do is they should mark out mm-hmm. where the seven... If you started qualified 20th and you had a 55 place grid penalty, how about you mark out where the 75th place is? And even if it's round the final corner, just make them start there. Just have an alternative <laughs> set of like like uh, Monza... Have the 19 cars lined up on the grid and then have someone with a 55-place yeah. grid penalty lined up behind the parabolica around the final corner. And they have, to, <laughs> they, have, they have a set of red lights. They have to try and catch up. You know, it's basically worse than a pit lane start. But but no, like on a, on a serious note, I, don't, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if I fully endorse the whole serve part of your penalty at one race and then have the rest left over because that can then like really snowball and affect you further down the line. Um, I wonder why there isn't a solution where, like back in the good old days when I started putting on my rose-tinted glasses, when I first started watching F1, it was just a simple fact of five-place grid penalty for replacement gearbox, ten-place for replacement engine, any part. So like, why can't we have that realistically? Um, I get the engines nowadays are more complicated than they have the... Well, what about a time? A time. What about a time-based penalty system? Because that's what you've you kind of... Yeah, it's what you've kind of in, uh, hinted to there. Um, instead of marching people back past Parabolica, <laughs> um, a solution could be that you just reflect that in, in time. So let's say, for example, you know, Mick Schumacher got a 15-place a grid penalty but qualified in 20th position and so realistically he's not going anywhere from his current position he's stuck in 20th position which means effectively that's a free new engine part now one might argue that well he deserves it because he's at the back and um you know the team's slow but i'd argue then that's not very fair and so if we're talking about equality and fairness across the teams you know one solution might well be that for every um every grid place penalty over and above let's say 20 because that's the maximum people maximum amount of people on the grid then you should have a half a second um time penalty added to your pit stop a bit like a a drive-through penalty so when so let's say in the case of of schumacher he would have to wait seven and a half seconds at the um pit stop before they can change his tyres. That way, he gets a seven and a half second penalty. A bit like what you've suggested, marching them round, except for instead of doing distance, I've just done time. And then that way, let's say in in the case of like, you know, someone else who, who has a 40 place grid penalty, they would have a 20 second penalty. Because the, as you say, it's not a penalty if Verstappen or Sainz can start at the back of the grid and get back into first place. What would be a penalty is them having to go from the back of the grid to first place, but then serve a 10 or 20 second penalty. And because it's it's a numbers system, it's it's served at a, a pit stop, it would throw up a different strategy. And also, it would prevent unserved penalties. I think the time penalties could work. Um, like, yeah, that seems a possible logical solution. Yeah, and it's would spend some of the penalty it's also the point of though does should you punish unreliability should that be punished on the drivers should because at the end of the day it's the manufacturers who make the engines that cause those engines to be unreliable arguably or sometimes it could just be the conditions they race in so would it be fair to penalize drivers for that i don't know maybe fines for teams but i appreciate there's a cost cap and they're fining people for lots of things yeah, there's definitely a lot of a lot of solutions out there, but I think certainly one of the things we need to go forward, like like many things in Formula One, one of the things we need to kind of clarify going forward is you know how we tackle some of these underlying issues that perhaps benefit the faster teams more than they do the slow teams, because 
Now they say, you know, if 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 someone like Haas starts accidentally, you know, is you know, gets this amazing qualifying position and and finds themselves um in you know thirteenth, fourteenth position, but then has to take a massive grid penalty, then you know they're going to come at the back. Whereas someone like Ferrari or Red Bull, it that wouldn't happen. We saw that that not happening. We saw Max Verstappen going from seventh place and uh, ended up winning the race. So clearly there is still a divergence in penalty um, impact in the sport. And, and certainly I think the FIA could do more to, to rectify that going forward. But we must move on from this topic and to the next topic, which is Ferrari, a team that had so much potential, wouldn't you say, this uh, this weekend, as Leclerc managed to find himself in pole position in Italy, in front of the Tafosi, in a Ferrari. It, it, the stars were aligned for a fantastic race, and yet it didn't quite go that way. To be clear, Ferrari had what I think was a a pretty reasonable strategy. And I do have some notes here from Tom to, to feed into this conversation as well, because I think we, we sort of maybe will disagree a little bit on, on Ferrari's performance. But Ferrari had to try something new. And starting off on soft tyres, they decided to pit earlier than, than the Red Bull to um, put Leclerc onto the medium tyres earlier. Um, and they had a longer middle middle sector, and then towards the end of the race, they they pitted again to try and get the undercut, with leaving uh, about twenty laps for Leclerc to catch up twenty seconds back to to Verstappen. But before the end, a safety car came out caused by Ricardo's engine failing, which meant we saw the end via a safety car. Um, Tom has fed into this and says that pitting under the virtual safety car was the right decision in theory. After all, he did get a cheaper pit stop. Um, but in practice, the virtual safety car came too early. And when Ferrari pitted Leclerc, um, they they boxed him onto a two-pit strategy on a very low degradation circuit. And they needed the safety car for their gamble to work. But what do you think, Angus? Do you think Leclerc was right to be pitted early during the early virtual safety car? Or do you think Leclerc, his strategy was sort of ruined from that point onwards? Or do you think, in fact, that Ferrari were never going to win this because of Verstappen's overall speed? They were never going to win it, realistically. Um, As soon as Verstappen starts in a grid position, which is higher than 19th place, um, you know he's going to win. Um, but on a serious note, he is very rapid right now. And yes, I think that it was a combination of the race pace of the Verstappen was just so good. They focused the car on the race pace. They knew they had these grid penalties coming, both Verstappen and Perez. So they managed to focus the race car more on, well, the race basically, thereby sacrificing some quality speed. Mm-hmm. And despite sacrificing some quality speed, they were still, Verstappen was still only a tenth and a half off pole, showing the advantage he has right now. Um, and Ferrari throwed the dice. People are going to go, oh, Ferrari, they messed up the strategy. Oh, I can't believe it. Why did they pit Leclerc twice? Realistically, if they did the same as Red Bull, they'd lost the race. So they had to gamble. They had to try. It was probably the slightly unfortunate time that the VSC, the virtual safety car, ended just as Leclerc came out of his pit box. But Dad's try something because Red Bull are just unstoppable and Verstappen are just unstoppable at the moment. Um, Ferrari hoping that, that that lovely those yellow lovely yellow race suits and that yellow tinge on the top of their car celebrating seventy five years uh, as a car manufacturer as a racing manufacturer. They were hoping it would bring them good luck, but alas, it was not the case. Mm. Um, they still had a decent result, second and fourth, not bad at home. If we're looking at a bigger picture, they extended their lead over Mercedes and the constructors but yeah realistically Red Bull just too quick at the moment and Verstappen is just on an absolute rampage he hasn't he's won the last five races which to put it in context means that the last time he was beaten in an F1 race was on the 10th of July and we're two months later so yeah it's um yeah I know there's a summer break but still that's a long time a long long time it is a long time, and it, I think it really reflects on how good Verstappen is now. And I, I know um, that the 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 F one math magicians out there will be 
quickly calculating um, whether or not uh, Verstappen can win um, in the next uh, race. And the answer is he can. Technically speaking, I think he needs to beat Leclerc by 22 points. And then the rest of the, the points, up, maximum points up for grabs would no longer be able to um, allow Leclerc to overtake uh, Verstappen. So if Ferrari, let's say have a DNF um, or let's face it, if, if Leclerc just doesn't get many points, I think he can, that means he can come in sort of uh, seventh position or so. Um, if, if if Leclerc comes in eighth, ninth or tenth, that's it. The, the, the championship is over, I'm afraid. However, I think you're right. I think Ferrari definitely made the right choice. And to be clear, pitting at, at Monza on lap 11 is always going to be a very, very brave choice. Yeah. But I think Ferrari personally had to do something a little bit different. And we knew that Red Bull was going to be really fast. And when Sebastian Vettel's Aston Martin decided it didn't really want to be a racing car anymore, <laughs> then it gave them an opportunity, gave Ferrari an opportunity to, to get a very, very cheap pit stop because it's well over 20 seconds, the, the, the time penalty for taking a pit stop at Monza because it's such a fast track and it's on the fast part of the track as well. And the reality is Ferrari were able to gain sort of um, five, six seconds from taking that, that virtual safety car uh, pit. Now, I think for me, this was a reflection actually you know, on Ferrari making a, the right pit call and they did it relatively quickly. I think if they'd hesitated anymore, then they would have been in danger, obviously of the virtual safety car ending. But, we know that it it was kind of the right choice to, to make because at the very end of the race, when they pitted Leclerc again to put him onto fresh tyres, Leclerc was only making up a tenth of a second on on Max Verstappen. And that means at the end of the race, it would have taken 190 laps for for Leclerc to catch up catch up with Verstappen. Now you might say, well, okay, yes, but Verstappen's tyres would have fallen off. But that's you know that's the kind of pace advantage that the Red Bulls had during the race, even on fresh tyres, even you know after that Ferrari had given Leclerc a good advantage, an opportunity to chase down and, and hunt down Max. He was just not making any gains. You know, it, gone are the days of Mercedes versus. Uh, Red Bull, when we saw Lewis Hamilton chasing down um, Max Verstappen and taking you know a tenth and a, uh, a second and a half, two seconds out of his laps, um, and it just wasn't going to fall in that direction. So I think, to some extent, it was a real shame um, that it didn't go Ferrari's way. I think they made the right gamble, but you know it it was an opportunity for for. Ferrari to try something new and perhaps you know at the end of the day the Tifosi won't be too dissatisfied I don't know if you saw at the weekend Angus um, the head of Ferrari publicly um, declared their support for Matteo Bonotto the team principal of Ferrari and indicated that his um, his time at Ferrari would would go on for a bit longer but he did add that only if there weren't that many more mistakes. So again, hmm. you know, feeding into what we were saying last week, it it still does seem like the Ferrari pressure is put solely on the team principal, and perhaps they're not necessarily assessing what's going on within the team. Uh, anyway, that's just my thoughts. I always think with the the team principal thing, there's a couple of things with what Mister Elkan, his name is John Elkan, I believe, has said about. Um, Benotto. I always think that when you have a a, um, a group, someone like that who's making public comments, who's not related to the Formula One side, I always consider it a bit of an interesting one. The fact they have to make those public comments, you you get the Mercedes have high expectations, right? Mm. But you never hear Mister Dieter Zetsch or whoever the I think the new head of Mercedes saying we must win championships within the next ten years um, or whatever. Um, I get Red Bull's different. Helmut Marco, they almost like they let him out once a week to say something, and it's usually controversial. And then they're like, "Oh, hang on, hang on, get back in your shell, Helmut. Come on, get back <laughs> yeah. in. You've you said too yeah. much, pal. You've said too much." Um, but yeah, it's back to um, your corner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the other comparison I'd make is that um, there's a well-known uh, thing in football where 
as soon as a I'm comparing with comparing it to football, where as soon as a chairman comes out and says the manager has my full support, that means that they are on the brink of getting sacked. Um, so that means the, that means it's just around the corner. Yeah. So whether whether oh. Mr. Elkan is is employing the same tactic with Mattia Bonotto, we'll have to see. But yeah, the pressure's on Ferrari. I think I think the pressure should be off slightly because we've we've gone from a situation where Ferrari have tossed this championship in the bin to a situation where Verstappen is just too good, and he's on the crest of a wave right now and. There's been yeah. a, there's been an actual turn since I reckon I remember when in Austria when Leclerc overtook Verstappen three times in the race, um, coming back from a further back position, and we were like the gap in the championship was like thirty five points. We were like, hang on, this could have a championship on here. Ferrari were a lot faster, and they could be a chance of them coming back into it. But then mm. since then we've had Paul Ricard. Well, again he was fast, but he threw it away. Did Leclerc Hungary? Ferrari threw it away, but then the last three races, just Verstappen's been on another, on another level. Um, he's been challenged at times for sure. Like in Zandvoort, the Mercedes were a threat. In Italy, he had to come from further back, but he's just on another planet at the moment. So I think that Mister Elkan could be waiting a little while before Verstappen stops winning before Ferrari get a championship. But um, yeah, I don't know. It was. I, I get as well for Ferrari is emotionally charged because they didn't like the safety car ending, and home race. You always hope that they can. Mm. You always hope that they can uh, put it on the top step of the podium. I remember one of the best one of the best moments I thought in recent years was when Leclerc won in front of the Tifosi back in 2019, and it gave me goosebumps. Just what, I remember watching the highlights early this weekend, um, just before the the race. The, this year's race and it gives you goosebumps just seeing the the Tifosi just absolutely crazy going wild for their beloved Ferrari um, and Leclerc winning that race so it would have been lovely to see it again but yeah it doesn't always work out that way but Ferrari made the most of it I think they made the most of what they could in tricky circumstance yeah I think you're I think you're right and I mean just moving slightly over to to the other you know the big player of of Max Verstappen would you say now that it's over i know we might well mathematically be able to confirm it is over but you'll you you'll get a gut feeling now you know is your money now on max verstappen picking up that second world championship um and do, do you think it will be as celebrated in the red bull camp as as last year's was i know last year's was surrounded by controversy but you know, there was a lot of emotion. There was a lot of excitement, actually. Would you say that this championship win from Verstappen will be as, as celebrated? Or, you know, do you think he's going to be a bit more like, oh, yeah, look at me, second world championship? I think he's going to be a lot more relaxed about it. I think he said that last year, and some people took it as a, oh, he's going to retire from Formula One, which why would he do that at the age of 24? That, that'd be ridiculous when he has so much potential. But... um it's also weird to think of have, saying a world champion has so much potential, but he still does. But, but, um, but yeah, um, I think the comments that he made that I was just referring to were that if he won only one world championship in his life, he'd be happy. That's his life dream. So anything else is a bonus. And I think that's helped him channel his energy this year into having a completely relaxed attitude, a more mature attitude, um, into racing into driving that car and it's meant that he's almost become an unstoppable machine um he's now he's now won 10 out of the last 13 races which is like ridiculous really um if you were to put the stat into a slightly smaller microcosm and i'd say that it probably would be less celebrated simply because last year was pure relief it was a super duper intense battle against mercedes and lewis hamilton it was Red Bull's first drivers' championship in eight years after Mercedes had won the double double, the constructors and the drivers back to back for seven years, and then they won the constructors again. Mm. So I think last year was just pure relief and jubilation, and it came across that it came across that way from all the celebrations that you saw, from all the uh, like ecstatic scenes in the Red Bull garage. 
whilst this year it may just be a because because they've dominated many aspects of this championship it may just be a case of all right done and dusted on to the next one and they currently seem to have that attitude in that they are saying themselves right it's done and dusted on to the next race can't dwell too much even though they are getting closer and closer to mathematical superiority in both championships so yeah not that they'd be low-key because you know world championship you never take that for granted it's still an unbelievable achievement but they definitely seem a lot more relaxed this year and perhaps their celebrations will be more relaxed but I'm sure they'll still go hard and party hard. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's over. Um, <laughs> gone are the days when we were discussing whether or not this was going to be a Ferrari um, championship. And, and that certainty, I think that we that some of us, not naming any names, um, had over whether or not it, Ferrari were going to take the championship is unfortunately slipped behind. And I would say that Max Verstappen's drive and actually someone like Carlos Sainz's drive as well um, was sort of the the most exciting uh, uh, drive of the race. But unfortunately, little did we know that it was going to be massively overshadowed by a driver that had yet to debut in Formula One and on Saturday morning got the call to replace Alex Albon in the Williams. I'm talking about, of course, Nick DeVries, first time actually racing in Formula One, got asked on Saturday morning whether or not he could fill the seat for Alex Albon, jumped in the seat, and in my opinion, did an absolutely incredible job for someone who was, well, not expecting to race. And and that that's a lot of, of changes that go on between being not being racing in Formula One and then suddenly being asked to, because he wouldn't have spent the whole time visualizing his braking zones going into the race he wouldn't have been training his neck and his body to experience the new g's and, and you might be thinking well hold on a minute he's got experience in in formula two and other and divisions how hard can it be and it is incredibly different there's some fantastic interviews with george russell for example talking about him jumping into the formula one car after he jumps in formula two after being in formula two and he he said that first time he hit the brakes after being in Formula 2 and trying Formula 1, it was like hitting a brick wall. There is a massive amount of changes going from Formula 2 to Formula 1. And for someone like Nick DeVries to get into the car and qualify in, in 13th position on Saturday, beating Nicholas Latifi, by the way, is absolutely fantastic achievement. And he even started in 8th place. Nick DeVries was able to, to drive consistently, quickly beat Latifi and on his first debut in Formula One score points finishing in ninth position yeah behind a safety car but to be honest I think for for Nick DeVries the safety car was a blessed relief I don't know if you saw at the end when he they all go into the the pit um to to line up and get out the cars he actually had to ask the Williams garage for help because he couldn't get out of the out the the, the car he's saying he, you know his arms were incredibly heavy and that's because of all those g forces acting on the body so Tom has said about this um is a very very accomplished drive it's a shame that his debut has come so late Williams should promote him and sack Latifi ASAP um, if they're seriously um, if they're serious about rising from the foot of the table. Um, if they keep um, Nicholas Latifi over Nick DeVries, it shows that they are happy to be in F1 versus compete in F1. And Tom thinks that Nicholas Latifi's financial power means um, it's not a straightforward decision, and that he also sends his best wishes to Albon as well. So yeah, going off the, off Tom's comments there, what do you think about Nick, Nick DeVries's drive? I mean, I can probably guess your thoughts, um, but in your own words, please. And off the back of what we saw, is Nicholas Latifi's time in F1 quickly coming to an end? And will he be, do you think, replaced by Nick DeVries next year? Well, who knows if it's coming to an end because he's got so much dollar dollar, uh, realistically. He's got so much money. So much support, <laughs> so much backing that way. Um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but Sophie, Sofina, is that the name of their sponsor? Sofina? Sofina? I don't know. Um, is what Latifi brings to the table. That's the company that is linked to his dad's firm, possibly, something like that. But um, He brings, um, his net worth is $2.5 billion, um, Michael um, Latifi. And as you say, brings with it 
um, Safina and uh, those those sort of sponsorship um, cash that, as as you say, keeps Latifi looking rather rather nice. So he brings um, with it Safina Foods, um, Lavatha Coffee as well, and the Royal Bank of Canada. So you know three big sponsorships there. Um, yeah. And Nicholas Latifi, you know, most of that comes from his his dad and, and Safina Foods. Yeah, so that's the reason why he's still there at the moment. Because last year, I'll admit, when he was up against Russell, he definitely showed improving signs. Now, I know Russell as a benchmark is incredibly difficult to meet, reach, beat, whatever. Um, And as a result, he's he's never going to look amazing against Russell. But he was showing signs of progress. He got points. He got into Q3. He got... He out-qualified Russell once out of 22 <laughs> races, um, <laughs> so fair play. But, um, but yeah, last year, he, last year he was showing promising signs, but, like, this year he's just gone backwards. He's, like, he was talking about take, leading the team, taking the team forward, um, and being, like, because he would be the experienced one who'd been there two years compared to Albon who'd had a year out of Formula 1. But it's just not happened, mate. It's just not happened. Latifi's just... His performance has gone backwards. He is still in a 20-man championship. He is still 21st, um, despite overtaking Hulkenberg a few races ago. Um, because, yeah, De Vries has just come in, into the car. And those of our listeners who are less aware, Nick De Vries is a GP2, Formula 2 champion, at the third attempt, admittedly, but he still won the championship. And to be worth your salt, you have to win realistically at first or second attempt. But he still won it. Um, he's a Formula E world champion with Mercedes, no less. Um, also a great achievement. It is his Formula E. It's not the pinnacle of motorsport, but it is a world championship. So it cannot be discredited, I'd say. Um, and he has pedigree. He's liked by Mercedes. He's often You often see him uh, sitting on the pit wall next to Toto Wolff during races. Uh, to which I think we were all surprised to learn that he's 27 years old and not about 20 or less, based on what his uh, his appearance comes across as. <laughs> 18, uh, as I said. 18, I as you thought. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's there. He's there helping them out. He's been doing lots of work with Williams. He's did an FP1 free practice one run with Aston Martin, of course, over the weekend as well. So. Plenty of experience in a Formula 1 paddock and a Formula 1 setup. He's even done some TV work with F1 TV as a, a co-presenter or an analyst, uh, which was what he was interrupted from doing on Saturday morning to be told that he needs to drive a Formula 1 car for the weekend. Um, and yeah, phenomenal weekend. Asterisk by it, I will admit, he was helped by the penalties, which meant that his very respectable grid position of 13th, admittedly, turned into a even more respectable and even more lofty position of 8th, which meant that it did make it easier for him to maintain track position in the race and to be able to progress forward and finish where he did. But it can't be di- it can't be uh it can't be discredited really because he did such a good job. There's lots of drivers who under the kind of pressure he was under from I'm thinking when he was under such pressure from Guan Yu Zhou at the end of the race. Um, for what was the final point at the time before Ricardo retired and they both moved up a place. Um, it was really, really impressive stuff. And it was, yeah, a great um, advert. He put himself, talk about the phrase, put yourself in the shop window. He's put himself front and centre in Harrods, mate, after that one, <laughs> after Harrods. that performance. Uh. A beautifully composed, a beauti- yeah, Harrods, I don't know where Harrods came from. A beautifully composed drive. Um not that it, not that it was an audition, but there'll be a few teams who'll be looking out. There are some vacancies still, and I'm sure we'll come onto driver market, um, drive market matters later on in the season, perhaps b- before or after things are confirmed. But there's still space at Alpine, there's still space at Williams, um, still space at Haas, and also at Alpha Tauri. So. You know, it's um, I don't think I'm missing any there at the moment. But yeah, he's put himself in the shop window with an impressive performance. He just slotted straight in. I think the most impressive thing, to be honest, I said about the asterisk. The asterisk is asterisk is there, but he's not even 
subs been sub subbed in and had Friday practice. He's literally had one practice session, and he hadn't didn't even know the night before that practice yeah. session that he was driving. So for me, that's the most impressive aspect. How he's just slotted in so seamlessly. Um, so the the guy's clearly got talent, um, and you'd think that would merit an F1C. F1's not just done on talent though. Money counts. Um, money does matter, mm-hmm. but. I mean, he's definitely done himself no harm at all. And, yeah, showing that the Dutch, after many years in the wilderness of, I can't really recall too many Dutch F1 drivers at all, apart from Max Verstappen's dad, Jos, who raced in the 90s and the 2000s, literally is a bare field. So, like, having a second Dutch driver as well, very good for for Formula 1 in the country. Um, so, yeah, I've, I mean, De Vries absolutely smashed out of the park, realistically. Absolutely smashed out of the park, he did. I think you have to compare it a little bit as well to, to Latifi, um, Latifi's performance because you are right. Of course, he was massively helped by penalties. Yes. But that's not to say that, you know, that's not to take anything away from him because at the end of the day, Latifi got given the same opportunity. And, De Vries, and Latifi qualified in 16th and ended up starting the race in 10th position. Whereas De Vries um, beat him, qualifying 13th, and started, therefore, you know, because of everything else that was going on, <laughs> in 8th. Um, shows you, really, I think Latifi, therefore, got a bigger boost um, in terms of of where he started, actually. Yeah, he did. So, there you go. Good old Latifi. So, even with the little um, a little boost up the, up the order that Latifi got um, with an extra place... Uh, he he just wasn't able to match De Vries' performance, as you say, someone that came into the sport without having taken part in in a free practice session, someone who came into this um, race not having driven the Formula One car for Williams, someone who had basically woken up on Saturday morning expecting to be helping out with TV and things like that, and then being thrown into a car. This was about as honest a first drive as you could possibly be give, given, and anyone. <laughs> Anyone would have respected him for coming in 17th, 18th position. But, you know, the reality is he was able to hold back Guan Yuzhou. He was able to hold back his teammate. And if he doesn't get a seat next year, I will be gutted. Because, personally, I think he's one of the more deserving people to get a, a seat than some of the individuals we currently have in the sport. And I think it's annoying that we've been having this sort of this sort of debate. There aren't many opportunities uh, to to see a raw talent like this, and you know to score points on your first race, that's Im- very impressive. And it's doubled down by the fact that it was in a Williams as well. And if he jumped into a Mercedes and score points in his, for his debut, you think, yeah, okay, fair enough, that's pretty darn good. Even, you know, a Ferrari, yes, uh, even a McLaren, you think, yeah, you know, that's to be expected, although, you know, perhaps not, looking at Ricardo's performance. But the fact that he jumped into Williams and was able to, to, to come in ninth place, I think that tells you a lot about his, his abilities. You know, the fact that he is also before, you know, won previous champions, uh, previous championships, demonstrates that he's you know got what it takes and um i just want to highlight something by the way because there's been a lot of discussion about uh super license points and uh this will be a topic i think we'll cover later on as well um due to some rumors about individuals that might be entering the sport but um i don't know about you angus but i i found it very very weird that indycar is not given the same amount of of points as formula 2 um, which has surprised me because IndyCar, I would argue, is a pinnacle of motorsport. You know, it's like saying that the top stage of rally rallycross isn't, you know, a, a you know pinnacle of motorsport. I found it weird that Formula Two you're given more points than uh, IndyCar, which is bizarre because for some people IndyCar is like the ultimate place to end up. Um, so that's just a quirk there. Um, you know, that, that for someone like De Vries winning Formula E, he wouldn't be given as many points as if he as he has been given for winning Formula 2. Even though I'd argue that Formula E is supposed to be like a, a pinnacle, if you like, of a division of motorsport. So there you go, just a, as a side note for you there. But I could see De Vries pairing with Alex Albon next year. I think it would be a, a very, very good pairing for Williams. Yes, they would lose the almighty sponsors, um, Safina Foods and um, Lavatha Coffee. But 
if if I'm honest, I think Williams need to trade off now and, and move on away from the money um, just a little bit to be more competitive. I, I suppose it would be a bit like Haas and how Haas have ditched Mazepin, ditched the the big weird money people that caused a lot <laughs> of controversy and, and brought with it not necessarily talent um, and have now got Mick and magnuson and you might argue that schumacher was bringing in a bit of sponsorship but you know and he might not be there next year but my point is they've sort of moved on from that i think it's time for williams to um as well because if i'm brutally honest i think we need to move away from um the the, the controversial drivers the drivers that are perhaps here only for the money but it's not the only controversies that we've experienced in Formula one um recently the end of the monza grand prix in itself was a little bit controversial certainly if you logged on to twitter for some reason uh you would have seen the arguments being thrown around left right and center about how the fia might made the wrong calls stewards made the wrong calls um how it was a disaster the whole weekend of um formula two there was poor calls being made formula three there was terrible calls being made and finally in formula one the worst call of all was made letting the race end under a safety car how dare they twitter was yelling at their mobile phones um tom's thoughts on the matter um is that monza's finish uh, shows that the safety car protocol is deeply flawed and massey was right to make the decision he did in abu dhabi i can hear oh. lots of people sort of getting us uh, getting angry then the squinty eyes perhaps um tom says that we want to see the results decided by clean competitive racing after all not by procession and that's why we watch the sport the protocol prevents that and de-incentivize teams and drivers e leclerc and ferrari at monza from taking risks and gambles knowing that there is a significant chance they may not be able to reap the rewards um later on in the race well Tom says, I would like the protocol to be reworked so that a race can't finish under a safety car and that a red flag restart is in place um, to mean the race has to finish under racing conditions. Under the procedure, all could start on new tyres and there'll be a level playing field and the best cast driver would win out. We are spectators of the sport, not inspectors, and we want to see good, fair racing versus um, every letter and comma of these current regulations are here to come what may um, and F1 risks damaging itself unless changes are enacted and he sincerely hopes that the FIA listen to Ferrari and Norris and I suppose himself and learn from this so it sounds to me like Tom is desperate for this to be um, to be changed and it sounds to me like a lot of people want it to be changed as well Angus before you feed in I will just quickly give you my, my, my opinions on this um, I'm sort of in agreement with Tom um, especially if there are tractors on on the circuit, I I hate there being tractors and cherry pickers and things like that on the circuit. I believe at all times it should only be Formula One cars. Um, and I'm sort of in agreement that I believe there should be a red flag um, procedure, whereby if there is, let's say five or six laps towards the end and there's going to be a rush to try and clear up the track get people onto the track and vehicles onto the track to remove a car they should re red flag the race and and that's because we will always be battling this notion of time penalties um and and trying to make sure that everything's done very very quickly and to be honest that causes mistakes we never want to see someone for example running onto the track and trying to clear up the track quickly to get under green flag racing conditions and and taking risks and i think there is an incentive if there aren't many laps left to take risks so in my opinion what should happen is it should red flag they should all go back to the pits they should not be able to change tires they should not be able to alter the cars and then when the track is clear we should reenact a safety car start so there wouldn't be a standing start. What would happen instead is the safety car would lead everyone round and effectively we unpause the race and it's a um it would be down to the the lead driver, in this case for Stappen, to restart the race just like we would have got if it was a safety car. So the red flag in this case wouldn't allow a standing start, which is I think a lot of the criticism of this notion, but instead would just allow them to do a rolling start and therefore 
you would still allow people to take risks. And in this case, Verstappen wouldn't have been able to change his tyres and Leclerc would have had newer tyres um, and they would have therefore been able to reap reward of a, of a sort of safety car. Angus, I think you're about to disagree with everything we've just said. Yeah, I'm a, tr- I'm a traditional man with traditional values. and uh, No, it's just... <laughs> uh, I just... I am really against the idea of things being fixed. Let life play out how it is. The reason why things like this aren't good, in my opinion, is because they're too manufactured. Verstappen worked incredibly hard to get the win and to have to make sure that he was in the right position. And they worked their backsides off that Red Bull team to have a car which was fantastic in race trim. So why does he then deserve to have what was a clearly manageable situation where they actually had to wait for Ricardo's car to be turned off properly because it was stuck in gear and as a result it wasn't completely safe to move and therefore the lights on top of the uh every time that a car stops they have a light on top of the uh on top of the the main monocoque the main body of the car that is green when the marshals and drivers can touch it and red when it's still an electrical hazard now i could not confirm whether or not it was red or green, but that must have been part of the reasoning for the car not to be moved. So therefore, they couldn't just say, why don't we just have a restart, a red flag restart? Okay, there's not a reason to do that. So for me, it's just it's this obsessive attitude that people have where people there has to be something happening all of the time. There doesn't have to be. There really doesn't have to be. If a race plays out and it doesn't end up being a good finish, so what? If I'm watching a football match and it's one all and my team has been do- has been uh, dominating all game and it's and we score a late winner, it's 2-1. And then they're like, no, hang on, we're going to send off all your defenders and you have to play for the last three, four minutes with no defenders just to make it interesting. That's not how sport is. You can't just make things interesting just because you want to please a attention-seeking 10-second TikTok audience that lives out there, okay? People want to watch the sport because they want things to happen. They want things to happen naturally. They don't want it to be a fabrication like it can be sometimes, okay? People want to be entertained for sure, don't get me wrong. But if the entertainment isn't there... Don't force it. Don't force it because then it just ruins the whole thing. Okay? So, as a result, you get people complaining that it was a horrible finish. You get people like Mattia Bonotto, who of course he's going to be upset. He's lost the race. Why are we surprised he's upset? He's only lo- he's lost a chance of winning a home race when he's under pressure as Ferrari team principal. Think of the reasons why he's upset. He's not upset because... Because of the sport, or because of the fans, or because of the the lack of a clear and obvious finish, or a lack of a spectacular finish, he's upset because he's being he's being a sore loser. He's crying about it. I'm sorry, that's the reason. Lando Norris as well. Fair enough, he wants to try and progress up the field, but realistically, all these people have ulterior motives, and it does not need to be forced. You do not need. If you're gonna st- if you're gonna do that, and red flag the race like that, in a situation where there's five four to five laps to go, and it's a car stopped on the track, are you gonna red flag the race every time a car stops on the track? No, of course you're not. It's obvious you're doing it because it's the last few laps. Please, can this sport never ever? And I'm glad they avoided it this weekend, and I'm perfectly at peace with the fact that the race finished like that. It's unfortunate, yes, but that's life sometimes. And please, can we never be like these American motorsports, IndyCar and NASCAR, which of course are good contests, but every time there is something in the last few laps, they red flag it to provide an exciting finish. I mean, come on. That's just like, that's not a bit of me personally. And I completely appreciate that my opinion may be very different to the vast majority of people out there, but I fully stick by it. I, I don't know. I don't necessarily think that it's a reflection on people being sad that their favourite driver didn't win. Um, and, and some individuals will have wanted this particular race to, to have uh, changes to the rules to you know reflect that they, they wanted their own driver to, 
to win. But I think because of the, the rarity that this occurs, there is a lack of clarity when it comes to what is supposed to happen in the last few laps of the race. And I think that's what we're all crying for. We, we all want that, that clarity because this hasn't really come to light all that often and it has done twice now, you know, one very publicly in Abu Dhabi and then this time. So I don't necessarily agree with you that, that people want these rules to be changed because of the that uh, they're, they're wanting their own driver to do better. I think for me, the reason I want this to be changed is because I, if someone has an accident on lap 10, it's not the same as if someone has an accident and calls for a safety car on lap 59 out of 60. There are differences. There are differences in spaces. There are differences in you know desires to try and get the, the track back up to spec quickly. And so I think it should be treated differently. And you know, purists out there like yourself, Angus, will, will disagree with that. But at the very least, I think F1 and the FIA need to address this directly and either say categorically and you probably agree with this i think categorically say nope on no account are we changing the rules that we're going to adjust this or they're going to say yes we're going to review it and come out with a decision because I'd, I'd like to point out that after Abu Dhabi they were supposed to review this and come out with an answer and we never got that which means fans are still left in limbo whether you like it or not we are still left in limbo on what to do and i'm sure this argument will keep going off into the distance and we'll come back again um, i'm sure it will come back next week actually when tom is back and we can also feed him more directly into this conversation as well because there is a bit of a gap now between the next grand prix but unfortunately we are rapidly running out of time uh, on this podcast and so for us this this debate is going to be coming to an end unfortunately but angus you know i i, I do think that we should adjust how how perhaps we respond to accidents on the last few laps but more pressing to me i think is tractors on track i don't know about you but personally i think if they bring a, a vehicle a big vehicle on track it should be a red flag i think obviously i, I make my point about uh the the finish and the way it was but i think i agree with you in terms of yeah tractors on track is just martin brundle says it a lot he always gets a bit of a shiver when he um when he sees tractors on track i think there's a famous instant where um it was actually sadly at suzuka where he like there was a red flag and he spun off in a red flag and his car hit a tractor but like like the back of the car, his car hit the tractor, so he like seriously got away with it. Um, and then, of course, mm. the very sad event that happened to Jules Bianchi uh, back in 2014. And it does make you think, yes, virtual safety cars are there, and that's definitely, a, in my opinion, a a much better improvement in Formula 1 because double-waved yellows, yes, cars slow down, but virtual safety car actually requires a specific automated delta time which they have to adhere to and it definitely makes it more safe but still yeah tractors on track do make i reckon a lot of us a lot of people including us uneasy just because to put it to put it bluntly jill bianchi his car went under the tractor and that is part of what killed him at the end of the day so yeah i have to agree like that's that's a um it's not a nice sight seeing a a vehicle and it's not like it's a quick vehicle that can get out of the way they literally use jcbs um i think for this because there's the the main kind of vehicle that can carry big heavy objects 700 kilogram formula one cars off the track so i have to agree with you there like that's the kind of situation where like red flags would be needed obviously it goes without saying that for entertainment purposes red flags should in my opinion not be used as much but for safety purposes if a red flag is the best option even if there's a tinge of doubt if it's the safest option, the best option, then it should be default option one, realistically. And unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this episode of F1 in Review, episode 29 already. Actually, episode 29, I can't really believe it. Now, unfortunately, we have got a bit of a break now to the next Grand Prix. The next Grand Prix will be on the 1st of um, October. That's the Saturday for qualifying the first and then uh, Sunday the second 
for the Singapore Grand Prix. Of course, you can follow myself and Tom on Twitter if you want to catch the latest in F1 news. Or if you have some extra time over the next uh, couple of weeks, you can go back and listen to our podcast either on River Radio on the Listen Back feature or on your favourite podcast provider. But thank you very much for getting um, to this point in the podcast if you have so. And we will be back next week with Tom to discuss the latest in F1 news. So thank you very much for listening and we'll speak to you next week.